Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Look out, it's only films to be buried with. Hello and welcome to Films to be Buried with. My name is Brett Goldstein. I'm a comedian, an actor, a writer, a director, a legume, and I love films. As Abraham Lincoln once said, I'm a success today because I had a friend who believed in me and I didn't have the heart to let him down. It's sort of like how Sam G. Wiz, or whatever his name is, believed in Frodo or something or nothing. Yeah, I'm not an expert on Lord of the Rings, but that does sound about right, Abraham Lincoln. Didn't know you were a fan. Every week I invite a special guest over, I tell them they've died, then I get them to discuss their life through the films that meant the most to them. Previous guests include Barry Jenkins, Kevin Smith, Sharon Stone, and even Bed Brambles. But this week, it's the amazing comedian, podcaster, writer, and runner, Mr. Rob Deering. Head over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein where you get an extra 20 minutes of chat with Rob. We laugh a lot. We talk about beginnings and endings. We get deep. There's a secret. There's a video. There's no ads. You get the whole lot uncut ad free. Check it out over at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein. Ted Lasso season one and two is available on Apple TV Plus. You can watch all of that in one go. Super Bob and Soulmates are on Amazon Prime in most countries. And the biggest of all, there are tickets and they are selling fast for the big live films to be buried with live, 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 live at the Hackney Empire on July 2nd. Make sure you get your tickets from plosive.co.uk and hackneyempire.co.uk. We'll have a right old laugh or a cry. Who knows? We'll see. You have to be there to see it. Do you know what I mean? So, Rob Deering, Rob Deering, Rob Deering. Rob Deering is a brilliant comedian, musician, runner, podcaster and writer. I met him when I first started stand-up. I had loads of gigs with him. I loved him then. I love him now. He's fucking brilliant. He now has, I think, two different podcasts. One where he runs and discusses music to run to. And one where he runs with the other excellent comedian, Paul Tonkinson. He's got books out. He's got it all going on. And he's so brilliant and he's so lovely. And I really, really enjoy getting to spend some time with him again. Hadn't seen him for a while. It was a real pleasure. I think you're going to like this one. So that is it for now. I very much hope you enjoy episode 196 of Films to be Buried with. Hello and welcome to Films to be Buried with. It is me, Brett Goldstein, and I'm joined today by a podcaster, a writer, a actor, a music quizzer, a musician, a runner, a book writer, and most of all, an extraordinary comic, 
please welcome to the show. It's the wonderful, the beautiful, the glorious. He's only here. It's him himself. It's Mr. Rob Deering. Hey. Hi. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I see how that works now. I feel comprehensively bigged up. <laughs> how are you, Rob Deering? Good to yeah, see you. Yeah, great. My ego is huge. It's like a, it's like a barrage balloon now. <laughs> now, Rob Deering, I ain't seen you in a while. It is lovely to see you. But I was thinking of something. I don't know if you remember this, but you did a great act of kindness for me once, which to tell probably sounds quite weird. But I think it was like 14 years ago. It could have been <laughs> 14 years ago. And I want to check this. Uh, I was writing, working on a script that had kids in it. And my sister didn't have any kids. And my friends didn't have any kids. I didn't know anyone. I didn't know any kids. And for some reason, you and I were talking and I said to you, can I study your kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I need to know what children are like. And I came around your house and we picked up your kids from school and we spent the day studying your, your children. <laughs> this is absolutely, yeah. The thing is, you were really worried that this was a weird thing to ask. And, and you know, because on paper, to your <laughs> listeners right now, yeah, maybe it is. But I completely understood. And what's more, um, for better or worse, my kids are uh, totally gregarious. They're the, they're the right kids for the job. And yeah, like you say, they, they were little. So I just thought, you know, it's like, you know, talk to Brett. And they're like, okay, off we go. La, 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 la. So <laughs> I don't know how representative of kids they were, but it was, it was right up the Deering family street. So uh, you're welcome. Well, in a way, they, your, your kids were so lovely and funny and nice that they were like movie kids that I was like, <laughs> this doesn't seem realistic. These are like sitcom kids. I'm going to have to change this. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I can't, you know, uh, I agree. I think they're absolutely marvellous. And obviously, like, like most parents, I think they're the best ones. But uh, yeah, yeah, they're not they necessarily know. representative of their generation. You also told me something, and I, I was thinking how I would word this so it didn't, I've figured out how to say it so that it doesn't out anyone. But <laughs> you told me something that has stuck with me. And I think ever since I've asked parents about it, where we were talking, you know, nature versus nurture. And you said about your two kids and, you know, same parents, same loving home, same love in which they were brought into the world. And you said one of them, and I won't say which was born with a certain personality trait. Again, I won't say what. <laughs> and you said, and they were just born that way. And you were yeah. just like, oh, wow, that's their, they, they're going to be like this regardless of how we raise them. Yeah, I think when it comes Does down to it, you're, you're, uh, you're being too oblique. And I don't, know what, I don't know what trait we're talking about, but I know exactly what you mean. Because, um, mm. again, in remembering when they were really little, and it, actually they were tiny at the time, but it was still late in the day that I cottoned on. My wife pointed out to me one day, quite close in age, my kids. They're like a year and a half apart. So when they were kind of two and three or three and four, something like that, my uh, wife said to me, of course, they like completely opposite things. They're completely opposite people. And I was like, mm. of course they are. They're total opposites of each other. And I'd never got that before because they're not, they don't, they don't bump. They're mm. e excellent friends and they really get on. It's just that if you ask them about anything, you know, anything from like, I don't know, um, popular music to uh, uh, Marvel DC to Marmite, they would have opposite opinions, you know, and that's just so nature, isn't it? They're, particularly as they get on and they're part of our family and everything, but they're, they're opposites. Do you think that their 
more opposites because they're brother and sister as in do you think that their opinions are in direct relation to each other as in my brother likes marmite so i won't no i don't think so i think the opposite is true i mean neither of them particularly uh conform to any in the wider scheme of things neither of them conform to any particular gender stereotypes and in terms of within the house i think the fact that their brother and sister gives them and the fact that they're different gives them a distance so that they get on so they're, they're kind of non-competitive as a result of their difference. So it's like the reverse of what you said. I love that. Also, what's weird is I, feel, I was going to say, I feel like we're talking about them as these little tots yeah. and they are the most, biggest, most grown-up children. They're, they're, um, and my daughter's about to be 16 and my son's 17. Also, he is like, here's me, he's like that. He's, uh, about, <laughs> he's several inches taller than me and, and uh, quite a lot wider. He's like, a, he's strapping. It's impressive and kind of wow. slightly scary. In fact, uh, when I told him this morning about my difficult journey last night, he, uh, he, gave, he gave me a hug and I felt very looked after indeed. He was wearing a fluffy onesie and I was like, oh, thank you. You're my emotional support animal. So, you know, the, the hands on the other foot. And, uh, and then, yeah, my daughter's slightly younger, but she could, she could run the world starting tomorrow if you, if you wanted to. So they didn't become scary, horrible teenagers? No, um, no, they're, they're great. They're teenagers, but they're great. And uh, also, um, lockdown was amazing because um, we always got on as a family. But it was kind of good timing because I think we'd never really been all been together at the same time. So I think if we were all sick of each other, it could have yeah. been a bit of a flashpoint. But actually, because we'd never had sustained time together as kind of four, basically four grown ups, we liked it. And then we got, we got into it. And I tell you, we've watched a lot of films. I like this. I, it's a phrase you don't hear enough. Lockdown was amazing, right? Yeah, that's right. No, it went well for us. I mean, obviously highs and lows. I think schooling was really tough for them. I think their yeah. school did really well and, and got better. But equally, yeah, we enjoyed our house. We enjoyed each other's company. I, I enjoyed the break from touring. Uh, and, you know, and all those things, oh, doing this, doing that, you know. Mm. Me and my wife did yoga every day. I wrote a book. Right. It was a special time. And you're a runner as a very, now? Very, yes. So as it turns out, you don't expect these things to happen, do you? And also, I'm so, I'm really uh, equivocal about it because people say people being boring about running is such a thing. And yet I am, I am not safe on that. You know, I mean, I've got two podcasts about it. I've written a book about it. And if you look at my, you know, timelines on the socials, I'm like, Oh, I see. Yeah, that's it. That's what I talk about. That's what I do. <laughs> my only claim, my only hope is that I'm that I'm the runner. Who, you know, I'm not interested in talking about numbers or laps or mm. interval sessions. I'm talking about what songs I listened to and what birds and flowers I saw and where I went and how much I reminded myself of people uh, of uh, Matt Damon in The Born Supremacy. So uh, at least hopefully it's a it's a it's a I, daring angle I'm running. I remember when you did your first marathon i've forgotten this until just now and you did it you you felt like dissatisfied with it you were surprised how much like it didn't make you feel happy at the end of it so you had to do it again do you remember that yeah yeah absolutely yeah i didn't like it i mean i i completely said uh, never again and meant it which apparently mm. again i'm not the only person who ever did that but i went off really fast i went off like a rat out of a trap and then had this odd balance where I knew I could still get a good time if I just crawled the last however, you know, the last however many miles. And I never, so I kept sort of stopping and going, oh, and then just running on. 
and I and I couldn't handle the crowds. People say, oh, it's so great. You've got all the crowds and all the support. And and it's true. I mean, I think I've done a London Marathon like eight times now, and I love it. I think it's fantastic. But that first time when I was all tired and feeling angry with myself, not sorry for myself, angry with myself, and everyone's going, go on, you can do it. And I was like, shut up. You don't know me. <laughs> <laughs> you know my dad. <laughs> and I think also as as comics, you know, we you, one gets a bit more blasé about having an audience. I think your 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 people doing a marathon are like, it's so great to have a crowd cheering me. It's like I've had crowds cheering me. Go away. I'm <laughs> better dealing now. with them like hecklers. What'd you fucking say? I was just saying, <laughs> go on, mate. I'm proud of you. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't I come yeah. to where you're running a marathon and shout at you? Yeah, yeah, and knock the trainers off your feet. <laughs> so, yeah, I said never again, and I'm now uh, in a week, a couple of weeks, I'm running my 18th marathon, and I'm trying to get to 20 wow. this year. This year? So you're going to do three this year? Yeah. You're mad. <laughs> I don't know what happened to me. <laughs> you're mad. Uh, that's very nice. Okay, one 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 marathon question. Hit me. Do you do you plan a playlist for the marathon, or do you have no music? What do you do? I'm very much into running, listening to music. It used to be always music, and then I get into running and talking, and that's how I got into. First of all, it started running with Paul Tonkinson and talking, and then that became a mm-hmm. podcast where we run and talk. And then I realised that that's a good thing. So I've run, I've done quite a lot of running, talk, chatting with strangers because people who supported my book did that, and I met them, you know. But basically, my number one is running with music. So my playlist for a marathon, my playlist for running basically is an enormous. It's a huge playlist, but totally curated. So I mm-hmm. always get a surprise, but it's always a song I wanted to hear. And these days. I've been trying quite hard to share that. So first of all, that's what my book's about, Running Tracks. It's runs, listening to specific songs in specific places. And then I've, since then, I've been doing this other podcast, The Running Tracks Radio Hour, where I run and host a playlist. And honestly, you know, putting my own (laughs) marketing feelings aside, I've done a a few of those now, and those playlists are fantastic. I want the world to know. I mean, obviously, I would like them because I chose them, but they're quite eclectic, so I think everyone would find something. And it's it's reinvigorated. It's the second time my love of music has been reinvigorated by running. Because, you know, when I started running, what, mid to late 30s? I, I mean, I love music. Music is my life. But I hadn't really... I wasn't really listening to much new music and I was listening mm. to like CD, re-released CDs of albums I had when I was growing up in the car, yeah. you know. I got into running, I started finding new music. Just, I just needed so many more songs. I just dug in. And when you dig in, you get better at listening to new stuff and diverse stuff. And then, and then a second wave of that was when I started doing this radio show. Honestly, I, my own playlist from my making playlists for other people, that next time we do a marathon, I'll just be listening to... Rob Doing's running tracks because there's a thousand of them and they're superb. Yeah, how how many songs are in your marathon playlist? Oh, oh be in four figures. Th- oh, hopefully wow. thousands, definitely a thousand plus. Wow. I won't listen to all of them because that would take too long. Then you'd be quite slow at the marathon. Yeah. You'd make quite a bad time if you if you'd finished the playlist. <laughs> I'd be like one of those people you see on the news that like you know when someone someone did it on their knuckles for the for the gorillas, <laughs> someone else did it just as a deep sea diver, and then it'd be like that, you know. So you come in on the news kind of eight days later, and I'm like, wow, what did you do? It's like I just listened to my music, <laughs> taking my the time. Music was too good. <laughs> I stopped at a hotel. I slept, had a couple of nights sleep. <laughs> I really wanted to know what the next track was going to be. Yeah. 
Rob Deering, I've forgotten to tell you something. What's that? And I should have told you, oh, I should have told you earlier, probably before we were talking about the running. Um, but I, uh, I feel like a dickhead. I'll just have to say it. Um, you Come died. On. Oh, oh dead. yeah, that, that, that is bad news. Dead. You're dead. Oh, yeah. Dead. Okay. How did you die? Well, give me a minute. I didn't even know I had. Thinking back, yeah, I was... Uh, well, now I come to think of it, I think I know what happened. Mm. I was in a little... Do uh, tell. <laughs> I, was in a, uh, I was in a small country village where I grew up. You know, it's one of those places, little church, little village shop, vicar, old lady, doctor. Um... <laughs> you grew up in Sylvanian families. Okay. <laughs> no, it was humans. It was humans. All right. I think there was one hedgehog. And, uh, and uh, anyway, uh, been, there was something sinister going on around the place. I wasn't really tuned into it. And then someone I knew and trusted came to see me. And, uh, and I said, oh, hello. And I don't think, I'm kind of seeing it from my own point of view. So I don't even know who that was. But I definitely knew and trusted them and said something like, oh, hi, what are you doing here? And then I don't know whether they stabbed me or shot me because I couldn't even see. I can just see my own face with a sudden look of shock. <sighs> and that's it. What I'm saying is, I think I was the second murder in a uh, little, little village murder mystery. You were Midsummer murdered? Yeah, if you want to know more about who it was and how it happened, you're going to have to talk to Bergerac or Miss Marple or someone, because it's too late for me. Oh I'm God. in the back garden looking confused before the second outburst. You're the first guest i've had who's been midsummer murdered i think to be fair i was miss marpled it's you who's taken it to nettles (laughs) (laughs) you were miss marpled yeah my god that's that's isn't it the dream i feel quite happy about it really i feel like i'm part of a great heritage i just wish i knew who it was you're definitely added to a list somewhere and you'll get your own wiki page you know it's something do you worry about death no i don't think i do i worry about getting old and there's a and there's a uh, there's a sliding scale, isn't there? Because I worry about, I'm aware of time, you know? I okay. kind of think, oh, I must do that. If I really want to do that, I should really do it. <laughs> because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not immortal. Or like, oh, I did that. That was really good. I'll probably never do that again. You know, oh, that's, yeah. a, that's a kind of vague sense of mortality, isn't it? But no, I don't. I don't worry about it. Well, it's about time you did. No, <laughs> uh, Too late, isn't it? What do you think happens when you die? Oh, um, I am pretty confident that we merge once again with the nothingness. You know what you can remember from before you were born? Yeah. Assuming you're not in the kind of Shirley MacLaine line of things. And that kind of just nothing at all. That's what I'm expecting. Well... Sorry if that's a bit of a dark perspective. No, I mean, it's, it amazes me that you're like, you don't really, you're cool with it. <laughs> I'm quite... Yeah, I'm cool with just merging with the nothingness. Well, you know, it's all good, isn't it? <laughs> well, well, I've got news for you, actually, Rob Deering. You're completely incorrect. I've got to tell you, the last thing you told me was pretty bad news, so I'm hoping this is good news. This is good news, I think. There's a heaven. There's a heaven. Hey! Oh, I called that completely wrong. Yeah, and they're, they're very, you're very welcome there. They're actually really big fans of yours. They love your work. They love the fact that you offer up your children as a scientific display. <laughs> <to be studied>. <laughs> <laughs> they, love, <laughs> they, they love everything you do. They also love, they love 
uh, your playlist. They're like, we're just going to play this for the next millennia. It's filled with your favourite thing. What's your favourite mm-hmm. thing? Running. I just want to run and run and run. No, my favourite thing... What, you mean apart from films? Yes, apart from films. Because they literally are. That's the problem. I think nice places to run and films and, uh, you know, somewhere... If, as long as in the evenings in heaven, I can have a beer whilst making a nice dinner and listen okay. to some good music. Um, do you, is that on the cards? Do you know what? Your heaven's pretty fucking sweet. It's got long, long beautiful nature runs you got you got your bridges you got your lakes you got your seas i love it. i've got to tell you i'm a big fan of victorian engineering they were all over the running we've got towpaths and uh disused railways with all the sleepers taken away yeah 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 all that that's all there. great brilliant Excellent. and um there's screening rooms and at the back of them there's you could have you brought your own beer and make your food or whatever it is that you do and uh <laughs> they're delighted they're delighted to have you there and they want to talk about your life but they want to talk about your life through film and the first thing they ask you is what is the first film you remember seeing rob deering oh wow okay well i saw I, i'm sure it's not the first film but it was so iconic that i definitely remember going was star wars and that's yeah. why to this day i always refer to it as star wars <laughs> As opposed to, you know, A New Hope or anything like that. But I'm talking about Star Wars Episode Four, A New Hope. And uh, I saw that at the cinema. And uh, I think I would have been five. Wow. So that was quite full on. And uh, because I do remember seeing those, you know, those steaming corpses, the ones that have had all the flesh burnt off their body. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. I totally remember them. So that does suggest that um, it was a bit scarring. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, that's what a, a, a flamethrower's corpse would look like. And uh, <laughs> says, says Deering, age five. Uh, but I loved it. You know, I loved Star Wars. And it's funny enough, I remember showing Star Wars to my kids when they were about five, or one of them was. And uh, I was like, wow, this has got loads of guns and explosions in it. <laughs> I have regrets. But uh, forget all that, because I don't think that's the first film I saw at the cinema. It was just like a really early experience. Like, I really remember um, you know obviously I'm the generation I'm sure everyone else is but a, a similar shock thing I remember being at the cinema and we were queuing you know like you used to I don't think you get this anymore we were queuing by a little gold sign in a corridor with like red carpet so it might as well have been the 30s but it yeah. wasn't it was about 1980 and uh, we were waiting to get in we were all very excited to go and see the big new film and uh, and the audience before came out and like, I was trying not to listen don't want to be plot spoilers and there was loads of little boys my age coming in the opposite direction and they were all going oh his face the face is melting it's melting oh did you see his face they were melting ah! <laughs> and they were really excited about it loved it but I would also say with a sprinkle of traumatised it had been yeah. a bit much for them what film was I waiting to get into Raiders of the Lost Raiders Dark Raiders of the Lost Ark I remember that very clearly and I was a bit scared frankly wow. um, and uh, it is quite a lot isn't it that last scene but no yeah. sorry none of that before either of oh. those films victorly before Raiders can you please answer those. the question answer the question Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger that's the first film I remember seeing in the cinema and I loved it wow that is cool because people don't you don't talk about those films because they, they're so rubbish now but they were great <laughs> at the time the kind of and and it was it wasn't the same era, wasn't it? Because there were the real high watermark for those kind of films is like Jason and the Argonauts, yeah, and uh, that was great as well. But that would see that on the telly, but they were still making them. The kind of Harryhausen, yeah, stop Euro motion. stop motion stuff, Greek myths, 
Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, I remember being really exciting. And then re- another one, like Clash of the Titans with Harry Hamlin and the little uh, oh, yeah. robot owl. Burgess Meredith, was Burgess Meredith in it? Love oh, those. Right. And Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, we went to see Spider-Man and we couldn't get in. So we went to see Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger and I was really disappointed. And yeah. I, I don't know if you remember what version of Spider-Man that is, but it's not in the canon, put it that way. It's the one with the, the sort of TV movie version. Yeah, yeah, the that they released. Quite loose-fitting quite a loose fitting suit he's wearing yeah and tea strainers for eyes yeah. <laughs> it's like, sort of like pajamas and he keeps having to pull them up <laughs> yeah. he that's right with toby Maguire. no <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we, we couldn't get into that and we went to see simba and the eye of the tiger who do you go with i forgot have you got a brother uh yeah. my big brother is a few years older than me yeah he would have been there then because i was really little but he's like six years older so when i was a bit older he wouldn't necessarily be there be off teenager right but he'd been there then because i had about four and ten yeah 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 all right okay lovely uh what is the film that scared you the most do you like being scared um i don't really i've avoided that line of country i mean i've experienced it you know what i mean my my particular take on a scary film is if it's um iconic you know if it's a in the canon, a film we ought to have seen and I want to see it so that I've seen it, but I wouldn't seek it out for the thrill. So I've seen The Blair Witch Project, but I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> no, I mean, I did enjoy it. It wasn't, it was kind of before everyone was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so I think probably, oh, it's a difficult one. One of the scariest films I've ever seen was the original, t- I don't know if this counts, TV movie version of The Woman in Black. Oh, right. With Andy Nyman. Yeah, and it was uh, it was not uh, they lost it for ages, didn't they? No one had yeah. the rights, and it's recently it's just come, been found been again. Yeah. And it's difficult. The trouble is, it's slightly harder to see exactly how scary it is if you see the woman in black as a, as Miss Lemon from Poirot on ITV. That undermines it. <laughs> but honestly, that that uh, that really shook me up. And uh, but I watched that on TV, so I don't think it counts. Oh, again, generationally, I am that generation who couldn't go anywhere near any water, including the upstairs right. toilet, after Jaws was on TV. I think it was yeah. one particular Saturday night in about 81. Wow. But the scariest film, actually, got a, I want myself in the cinema to answer this properly. So we jump forward a few years. I did a gig at, at Nottingham Jonglers and uh, it was a horrible audience and bad sound. And I'm not <laughs> going to lie to you, Brett. It didn't go well for me. There was there was booing and uh, and they threw things Uh, and uh, I mean it was like that it was like a fictional comedy death and then I drank a lot of gin and then I went to a pub and I drank a lot more gin and then I went and saw the orphanage. Oh my god! Yeah, that's a fucking great film. It's absolutely fantastic. And the thing is, yeah. it's the emotion of it. It was, it was terrifying. I mean, particularly for me, I don't really watch scary films, as has been established. And it's so scary, but it's also so sad. So sad. Oh, God. It just, I mean, it just broke me. I couldn't think about it. Couldn't think about the end of it for, for months, for yeah. months. And, uh, but, in, but from here, it was like a, the timing of it was amazing. It was like the worst night of my life. But I drew the sting <laughs> of the whole thing with this incredible film. I mean, really great, but oh, yeah. awful. Just awful. Yeah, awful. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> What's the... Oh, Nottingham Junglers. What is the film that made you cry the most? Are you a crier? I imagine you're a crier. I'm a massive crier. Um, yeah. uh, the uh, the uh, speech Jude Law gives in the holiday. I'm a weeper. I weep at a uh, uh, greeters cards. Um, uh, that's me. That's based on me. He was quoting me directly. Um, <laughs> but no, the funny thing is, though, and it's obviously connected, 
is I wasn't. I thought I was, it's all to do with uh, uh, emotional repression originally. I remember going to, here we are. <laughs> I'd like to apologise. Hey, you can cut me wherever you like, but I'm going to continually tell you about films that aren't the answer to your question. Because <laughs> I went... Be the longest podcast. Yeah, particularly as I'm in a generation where we're going through a barrier that is all the films ever, you know, sort of between sort of 77 to 84. Lived it, mate. But uh, yeah, so me and Richard Osborne and Richard Osborne's mum went to see uh, E.T., and he was on my left and she was on my right. And for the last half hour of the film, I was passing tissues. Can I have a tissue? Can I have a tissue? Can I have a tissue? And I didn't cry. I mean, I watched E.T. and didn't, I, not only did I not cry. You're a psychopath. I know. I, was like, I didn't understand why you would. You know what I mean? And I've yeah. seen it in recent years. And yeah, I've been as messed up as, I mean, and I'm a terrible crier. When me and uh, my wife came out of Titanic, we started the car. And then stopped it again and just sat crying like for ages. <laughs> like, I can't drive while this is happening. And I went to see, um, uh, oh, what's it called? Uh, English Patient with my friend of mine in Finland. And uh, we, she was just chatting away about doing the post-film debrief. And I just said, I want you to stop talking about it. <laughs> anyway, the thing that where it broke was it was one flew over the cuckoo's nest oh, wow. i saw it on tv when i was i don't know when it was but it wouldn't have been that long after i'd seen et and in in psychopath style and i remember yeah, watching one for the right. yeah like no soul not even <laughs> understanding what what is on the the alien so has the so alien what? got what by. they wanted <laughs> it, was, it was you know uh, logistically the uh scheme is complete um <laughs> he phoned see. home he went home the end <laughs> he phoned home went home what's your, what's your beef <laughs> <laughs> so you know and they had a lovely bike ride for goodness sake and the funny thing is i remember that i remember just when the floodgates went i didn't know what to do i mean it hurt in my soul and i went and had a bath i was all upset and my mum it probably thought we traumatized him we don't know what to do she said why do you have a bath and I went and had a bath and I was just lying in the bath going, Aah! and saying, but it was, even then I remember really insisting that the end of One Flew Over the Cookies Nest was a happy ending. But I don't understand this. It was a happy ending. It was just like after a fashion, Rob, but come on. So, yes, I really had to learn. And since then, I've been terrible. Another one, I was at university and we watched Awakenings and I was trying to be all oh not cry in front of my new flatmates. Yeah, yeah. But I held on. I was like... I'm fine. And I went to go to the, uh, the, my room and my room was locked. I'd left the keys in the kitchen and I just got to my room door and I like, was trying to open my own room at university and just in the corridor in the hall going, <laughs> 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 crying about awakenings in the corridor. So I, I've caught up since. Okay. But yeah, the, the floodgates was one play of the cookies. Man. Such a great psychopath test. Just to I put can't it understand it because it's a happy ending, obviously. And E.T., I mean, you know. You're, 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 you're insane. I know. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> E.T. is now. Not, not a remotely happy film. E. And honestly, I... Horrible. I, and I cry <laughs> at anything. I, got, I cry... I, I'm more likely than not to cry at any given episode of The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah. Sets me off. Yeah. Any Simpsons episode that's about Homer and Lisa, I'm going to... Oh, it's a, I'm just thinking of the bit where um, uh, Maggie thinks that the ice cream is Marge's hair. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> what is the film that you love but it's not critically acclaimed most people don't like it but you don't care what they say because you yeah yeah it. yeah well i love i really enjoy a film that's and i think you, lots of people probably agree with this i i, I think i've only ever enjoyed hudson hawk 
Yeah. Yeah, that's Why a good that film. It's a lot of fun. Hey, mister, are you going to die? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if I'm honest, this one's more culturally uh, complicated and I have a real proper relationship with it. In uh, summer 1983, during mm-hmm. our two-week summer holiday in the, the rainy British countryside, we had the proper rainy day and went to the cinema. And I always dreamed of that day because then we'd go to the, you know, and see, and, uh, and it would often be a James Bond movie. And, uh, and in summer 83, I thought, saw one of the, what at the time was the best film I'd ever seen. And I would still watch it any day. And that's Octopussy. It's a lovely answer. Yeah. And I have to say, obviously, it's fairly socially indefensible. Yeah. But I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty right on, and I think that it is much more crass than properly offensive. Ill-judged. Um, <laughs> I mean, but don't get me wrong, I'm not going to stand up in court and defend it against charges mm. of, uh, of sexism and racism and stuff. But I still find it... And also, I'm not saying... I wouldn't say, oh, I love a Roger Moore James Bond film, because there, a lot of them are howling dogs. But I, I've got a real soft spot for Octopussy, and it's exciting. The, mute, the soundtrack is great, and the action sequences are superb. He has that long chase where he has to get all the way across Germany, and he's got, like, four hours. I love that. You don't see that. You know, well, someone's no, you got loads of time, and they can make phone calls and do hitchhiking and stuff. <laughs> and yet, in the end, he ends up with just 30 seconds to defuse the bomb. It's great. Great film. Love it. Indefensible. I'm ashamed that I said it. Indefensible. I stand by it. Can't bear it. I wouldn't wouldn't wish it on a dog. I'm watching it tonight. (laughs) What is... uh, I'll take it to my grave. What is... Quite literally, apparently. Yeah, maybe. What (laughs) is the film that you used to love, but you've watched it recently and you do not like it anymore, for whatever reason that might be? You know, it's funny, this one. The ones that really jump out, I remember really enjoying at the time, and I feel bad about this, but I just want to speak. I know, like, I, I, you know, this is an issue, isn't it, where you, where you when you realise the stories of the films and what they mean, and people make films, you know what I mean? You don't want to hold anything yeah. against anyone. But having said that, I think there's a national treasure, a legend, a very talented guy who's making brilliant films, whose early films are quite hard to watch now, and I remember enjoying them a lot. And that's, uh, I feel bad now, in case he's your best mate. Um, Peter's Friends and what's the other one? Dead Again. Have you seen Dead Again? Oh, Dead Again is amazing. Woo! Dead Again is wild. It's a and the funny thing, thing is that it is a difference in perspective because at the time, maybe it was just my immaturity, but I just thought, this is great. Yeah, this plays like a hitchhop. Yeah. Like I'd seen Vertigo and then I watched Dead Again. I thought, yeah, that was good. It doesn't feel like that when you watch it now. How does it feel? I've not watched it. I used to, I used to fucking love Dead Again. Yeah, well, it is clunky. And after a while, <laughs> you just don't buy into it. You think this, these British guys are just doing American accents and it's, it's, it's like yeah. a cartoon. They're just kind of... And in a way, uh, Peter's Friends is like that too. You see the big chill and then you see Peter's Friends and I don't know, they just don't feel... I, I can't buy into them anymore. They feel like uh, drama exercises, you know? Thank you for checking and, if Kenneth Brenner is my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I shook his hand once. I think I—I lo- I, I mean, obviously he's great, and he's—and he also he's all over. I love his work. I love his Shakespeare. Shakespeare films from the time mm. date amazingly. I think Much yeah. Do About Nothing is underrated from here. I think it's fantastic, and Hamlet, that whole Hamlet is is yeah, fantastic. It's really good. But having said that, my uh, my. Uh, Miss Marple. I went for Miss Marple over Poirot. Anyway, um, yeah, so that would definitely be it, although I feel bad about it. I think there's a couple of films that I really loved that are probably appalling, but I'll avoid them. Um, right. Those kind of 80s musicals. And they'd be really rubbish and probably like all kinds of offensive as well. 
films Great. like uh, Electric Dreams. Oh, okay. And uh, what's the other? Xanadu. I thought Xanadu was great. Right. I have seen Xanadu. It's terrible. It doesn't even hang together. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and I thought it was great. It's amazing how open-minded we were. The stuff we just go, oh, okay. Yeah, that's a film. Yeah, I'm entertained. I know what's going on. And like, incomprehensible rubbish. So, yeah, Xanadu and Electric. In fact, I'm sorry, Sir Kenneth. All wrong. Xanadu. He's in Oscar nominated this year. Of course, yeah. full respect. Xanadu, Electric Dreams. I haven't seen Electric Dreams again. So we go Xanadu. That is yeah. a film which I have to admit that I loved. I don't know why. Probably pre-ET, full psychopath, and I've seen it since. <laughs> and it's one of the worst things that's ever been through my eye. Really good answer. I like the journey to get there. <laughs> I'm just, I don't think I'm ever going to work with, with Sir Ken now. I think he, he'll forgive you because he seems like a very magnanimous. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia and Yellow, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Man. <laughs> What is the film that means the most to you? Not necessarily the film itself is any good, but because the experience you had around seeing it that will always make it special to you, Mr. Rob Deering. Well, I'm slightly embarrassed about this film because the answer ultimately comes to me really obviously and it's definitely a film, but I'm a bit embarrassed because it's so kind of on the nose. But I think that when it comes down to it, these are the films I love. You know, I love films, entertaining films that work is where I live, you know? So I've got to learn to lose my shame of mm. Hollywood doing what it does best. Anyway, Ferris Bueller changed my life. Just changed my life. I was on, mm. a, I'd, see, I'd seen a poster for it at the cinema. I'd have been, what, what are we talking, 87? So I'm 14, 15. And uh, I saw the poster, you know, the kind of screen print poster of the car going in the opposite direction in the traffic. Right. And it's called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I immediately thought, oh, that sounds great. I love the sound of this film. <laughs> I love a day off. I mean, <laughs> I'm so lazy and I'm a psychopath. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, when you think back to that, I mean, why did I lie on that thinking that that's good? But it was something a bit different, wasn't it? And then mm. I went on a school trip to America. I mean, you don't get those yeah. anymore, do you? Isn't yeah. that fantastic? We went, yeah. It was an arts exchange. So it was absolutely, you know, there was a proper non-dead yeah. poets. I was going to say, like Dead Poets Society, only not sad. But let's say, well, what was sad about Dead Poets Society, really? I mean, you know, uh, you know the children yeah, get educated. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> 
no, I, I was I was emotionally awake by the time I saw that film. So I was on this arts exchange to America. So I was I was doing all real, you know, actual. I was in a, a, a play we loved doing. We went to see. Uh, we went to all kind of music things, but also I was hanging around with these cool Americans and properly. Yeah, I said that's when I kind of decided to start wearing black clothes and listening to the Cure all day long and everything. Right. And uh, and it was just. I was really, it was a real teenage moment where I was finding out who I was. And that was already happening. What was the play you were in? Uh, Oh, What Lovely War. Great. Yeah. And it was good. You know, it's a good play, right? And it's basically a very workshop script. So if you do it right, you're doing it like they did in Theatre Royal Japanese. And uh, and we did it in this big theatre in uh, Marblehead, north of Boston. And everyone went, good job. And I didn't know what that phrase meant. I was like, what does that mean? Good job. (laughs) And then... uh, (laughs) And I spent all my money on a Mickey Mouse baseball jacket and literally decided the next day to wear black for the rest of my life. So, you know, it's a, it's a moment in time. Anyway, my friend's uh, uh, exchange, not mine. Mine was the crazy man. I said, what's my exchange like? And they said, hmm, he spent a year thinking he was a bird. But my friend was <laughs> up the road uh, staying with this girl who was lovely. And we went to his exchange house. And, and watched a video and it was uh, and again shows the timing because it was Ferris Bueller's Day Off released on VHS before it had even been on the, at the cinema in the UK oh wow and uh, yeah so just watched it on VHS in this Amer- uh, living room but in America in America uh, yeah, and it's yeah. Ferris Bueller's Day Off and, and honestly life moves pretty fast and if you don't stop and look around once in a while you could miss it I honestly you know WWFD written on my underpants and I know that from here I was just the other day someone was saying oh he's such an arrogant little privileged scrote you know but I think to, I think John Hughes knew that you know for, yeah. when Ferris Bueller complains about not having a car you're not supposed to sympathize with him yeah. you know he's spoiled when he says that you know but anyway it, it it changed my life it was it was a it was a it was a compass reading for what to do with yourself at an incredibly vulnerable moment when I was actually in America thinking who could I be what could I do as a teenager and Ferris came along in what to me looked like a really cool cardigan and made some decisions that I really respected yeah and now it's only now that I like watching back to the future and stuff it's just amazing how these um, apparently um, rebellious teens still basically get married at the end they don't get yeah. a girlfriend at the end they get married at the end yeah Marty McFly and Ferris Bueller and these women who were just a function of them decide to get married it was the 50s not the 80s it turns out but anyway yeah, yeah. first years they all changed my life it's very much a cultural you know I'm obsessed uh well, not obsessed I got into yeah all right I'm obsessed with a show <laughs> called The Bachelor in America I don't know if you've heard of it but it's, heard a, it. it's such a fascinating sort of cultural thing because it's a show in which The Bachelor a man is encouraged to date and I think sleep with 25 women over the course of a few months but at the end of it he has to marry one of them it ends in marriage so there's this weird sort of puritanical weirdly like go and have some fun but at the end of this you're getting married son yeah you know what I mean? yeah and i mean how old are these bachelors in their 20s it's too, too young you know yeah, just have a good, i'm also you know. like at the end just go like do you want to go on another date you don't have to marry them Jesus. no exactly i mean i love my wife and we got together and we liked each other immediately you know it's been a lovely textbook relationship lucky me i don't know you know i, I really lucked out but still, when we first met, we, we kind of got together and then we didn't see each other for two months. And it was a shame. We really missed each other. We exchanged mm. postcards and stuff. It was still very healthy. 
And then, you know, and then, and then we got out, you know, and then we didn't get married when I got back, you know, it's just mm. life takes longer than that. You know, life, I suppose life moves pretty fast. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but, and by uh, the way, it works both ways. Just so you know, it's the, the the bachelorette happens after the bachelor and the bachelorette dates twenty five men, and then in the end, she has to marry one of them. The it's idea is that it. the thing is that it basically works on the assumption that, uh, well, first of all, that you know everyone's straight, and secondly, that you are everyone from the opposite gender is just is just a possibility for it to be a life mate. And that's yeah. just no way to approach other humans, is it? It's just no way to go into it. No. Shame. <laughs> Sorted that out. <laughs> but it is, you know, I think that Back to the Future is like, you know, it's near perfect, isn't it? It's such a great film. It's so, yes. I didn't realise until recent years that they were just as, would have been just as worried about it feeling queasy if they did it wrong. I just thought they they were blasé about it, but they, they it's so well judged with it, with mm. the thing with his mum and everything. It could be yeah. awful if that was a bad film. You go, oh, this is this is awful, and as <laughs> it is, it just works. And Michael J. Fox is perfect, and the whole you know they worked really hard to make a perfect film. The fact that the Steven Spielberg thing where he said start it really slow for ages to make it exciting is that true? I, I heard I that. that they say yeah, it was it was Steven Spielberg's advice. The the reason you spend ages looking at. Um, Doc Brown's alarm clock and he has an audition for the band thing mm. is so that the rest of the film seems so exciting because you just really take the time for the first 15 minutes. Mm. And that was a Steven Spielberg. T- anyway, so I hear. But the thing that is that he basically has this girl who says, I love you. Then she isn't in the film. And then at the end, they get together, and particularly with the sequels and everything. That's mm. it. That's, they start the clan of people who look exactly like him. I mean, it's all, you know, it's more deliverance than Back to the Future, really, isn't it? <laughs> what is the film you most relate to, Rob Deering? Obviously, Ferris Bueller still, no, mm-hmm. that's changed a lot, but it was a moment in time. I have to say, I'm kind of reverse engineering this because I'm not sure I particularly watch films in that way. You know what I mean? I'm a little bit ashamed because I still really love the kind of James Bond model guy with i suppose really no it's modulated i like the uh i like the matt damon model you know the guy who is an it was just whatever he does he's an absolute expert at it but he's very uh um diffident about that and then he's a hero who survives you know whether it's being right. on mars or playing poker mm. or being an international assassin but with guilt you know this is so but you can't identify with those guys because they're at best it's uh it's male fantasy and at worst you're you know I'm a psychopath again. So, um, but that's what I love. I love a Jason Bourne. I love an Ethan Hunt, you know. Right. And I suppose where I relate to them and where they've actually influenced my life is the running. Like, talking about running, you know, when I go for a run, I'm not trying to be Mo Farah. You know, I don't read the magazines. I don't know what people who run yeah. are doing. And I don't want to see myself running because I run like a big rolling, <laughs> I run like a fat bloke and always will. And, uh, <laughs> And uh, but I'm I'm Jason Bourne on the beach in Goa. That's who's running when wow. I go for a run. And that thing that people always take the mickey out of that Tom Cruise runs in all his films. Yeah. Oh God, I love those scenes. Mission yeah. Impossible Three. Just turn left and run uh, uh, three quarters of a mile down there. Oh my God! And then they just do it again on top of Blackfriars Bridge in Mission Impossible Fallout. Honestly, I've, I'm literally trying to find a ladder on Blackfriars Station so that I can get a fast run across the top of Blackfriars Bridging because I love that that thing. So, yeah, films where uh, where Tom Cruise runs. I love it. I love it. What an excellent answer. Rob Deering, look me in the eye. 
What's the sexiest film you've ever seen? Look away. Sexiest? Whoa. <laughs> well, I've got to tell you. Go on. I need a minute. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> that's the sexiest film I've ever seen. I feel, I've, uh, yeah. Okay, full disclosure. I, I, you know, again, I'm talking about things being crass and quite on the nose. I just didn't know. I didn't know what I was getting into when I sat down to watch Bound. Nice. And that was a... Nice. That, <laughs> nice. That's nice. right. That's a lovely film. No, that's a very good film. Yeah, I mean, I obviously it seems you know it's just basically in any other circumstance, it's just me saying, "Hey, so I was watching some pretty on the nose soft porn." But the thing is, I was expecting a good tight little thriller. Yeah. And uh, so when is it Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon? It is when they got together, which is a sexy scene. Yes. Oh, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. (laughs) So yeah, probably that. Great answer. What? Uh, there's a sub. Honest answer. It's not a great answer, is it? I mean, I don't come off particularly well. I, listen, that. all I care about is people being honest in this question. It really Truth annoys me. Truth is best. It really annoys me when people go like, "Oh, the romance of a screwball comedy." I'm like, "Shut up, <laughs> you liar!" What's the? There's a subcategory: troubling boners, worrying wide-ons, a <laughs> film you found arousing that you weren't sure that you should. Rob Deering. Well, yeah, this is this is this is really interesting in terms of what you just said because sometimes you think, oh, I really shouldn't fancy that person or find this thing sexy, but I do. But I think in the history of cinema, again, you realise looking back that people meant that, you know. Yeah. So, for example, I really fancy uh, what's her name, Joan Greenwood in the eating comedies. Oh, That's nice. Joan Greenwood, isn't it? With the with the posh, sexy voice. Posh, posh Joan Green, posh, posh Joan Greenwood. Yeah, it's yeah. Impossible to say. Yeah, posh sexy. <laughs> it's, it's a bit grieves on the lovely sexy Kim Yeah, posh voice sexy um, uh, Joan Greenwood. But the thing is, at first I was like, oh, you're not supposed to fancy her. She's all posh and in the old days or whatever. But like, you know, those ceiling guys knew what they were doing. They were trying to work around the Hays Code and sell those films yeah. in America. She's supposed to be sexy. So there's no shame in that. There, I had an experience I want to tell you about where I felt guilty. But again, the film was sexy, so it doesn't really count. But do you, you remember Sliver with Sharon Stone? Huge fan, <laughs> Great. huge fan. Yeah, it's all and it's all you know, hidden cameras and uh, people, you know, masturbating in hotel rooms and you know, it's uh, yeah. it's grubby, it's isn't film. it? It's grubby it's and, and great film. Well, I saw that on a boat. I used to tour around a lot, going off to Europe on ferries, and uh, on the longer trips, you'd be able to go to the cinema. And I thought this is brilliant, you know. Was, mm. uh, and I'd watch any. I saw Spice World on a boat for goodness' sake. What <laughs> was my life? But anyway, I went to see, and sometimes the cinema on a boat would be a little cinema, and sometimes it would be a more multi-purpose room with a screen drop down. Mm. Anyway, I went to see Sliver in what was this this voyeurism thriller in mm. uh, what was essentially like a conference room, and uh, there was just and there was no one there. I just I found it. I had a ticket, but no one showed me in or anything. I just saw oh W four or whatever. Went through this boat door, sat at a comfy chair next to a table. I was smoked then. I had an ashtray, a little cigarette. And then they started this film about watching people. And there's no other people around. And I just, it, it, there's nothing to do with the embarrassment of the film. You're supposed to find that film sexy. Yeah. But I felt like a ridiculous watched. character. I felt like I was, uh, no, I felt <laughs> like the watcher. I was a Mr. Grubby producer. You know, I felt like I was going to scratch my, yeah, show it again. Wind that scene back. <laughs> and uh, I was, I was, it was crazy. It was such a weird experience. But it was like, it was like, I tell you what it was like. It was like secret cinema. It was like my own little secret yeah. cinema voyeuristic experience. But neither of those answer your question. And I'm going to get up to cut to the chase now. 
You know, we were talking about Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Mm-hmm. Do you remember it? Have you seen it? Is it the one with Medusa? Is your answer going to be Medusa? No, that's Clash of the Titans. That's good stuff. No, in Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, the baddie is a witch. I think she's quite gorgeous and sexy. I don't remember. And she, I'm really embarrassed. I'm going to finish the story now and you can have it. Um, she, uh, um, I think towards the end of the film, she disguises herself as a seagull with a potion. And she's got the potion that can, uh, <laughs> that can change her back. And, uh, and she just makes it back and has the potion, but there isn't really enough. And she's left with one seagull leg. I thought that was pretty sexy at the time. Who am I? What was going on when I was little? You were unbelievable, you were a frightening child. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> someone's going to sit down. I mean, some an imaginary person is going to sit down and watch Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger and see that last scene of this witch going, "Oh no, my one seagull leg," and go, "Oh yeah, no, I get it." That's, uh, yeah, that's it sounds sexy when you describe it. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who won? You know, won one seagull leg with very poor oh, special effects. <laughs> <laughs> she also she really cannot resist chips after that particularly eating outside also the one seagull leg so does that mean she's very is it a very long leg oh no it's human-sized seagull oh it's leg. a human-sized seagull leg. i mean and also in terms of special effects i think it covers up her actual legs so it's more like an elephant's foot yeah what's objectively the greatest film of all time yeah okay so just on the list not from me i have to say i really don't think you can say this can you i mean you could pick a film for all time but only subjectively, because you've got to be in the mood for it. You know what I mean? You could say, okay, it's The Searchers. And then, you know, you could argue that point or Citizen mm-hmm. Kane. But I think in real terms, in real life, yeah. if a film hits all the dots, if a film is within its own um, compass, perfect, like a jewel, yeah. you know, when then you see a film and you think that's really good. And then it starts to become multidimensional. Like, so you see that, I don't know, the script supports the story, the casting, the music is perfect. The storytelling is helped by the music and the casting. The storytelling builds up to the surprises. And every, every time you look at it, every time you watch it again, you find a new detail which supports your very first idea of how good it is. That's 100%, isn't it? That's five stars. Yeah. Those are the best films. And there's loads of them, you know? I think that, uh, I don't know, I think Frozen is a perfect film. It's, it uh, really is. You know, and I've got, I've got a School of Rock. School of Rock is yes, correct. The Matrix—they all, in terms of succeeding in what they set out to do, Goodwill Hunting—they just bang right on the money. So I think you know my true answer would be there's loads, but I think really maybe, and it's also to do with what I was saying about popular films. You know, it's very easy to say, "Oh, I love this piece of art." You know, I mm-hmm. a couple of years after Ferris Bueller's Day Off, if you'd asked me this, I'd have said Wings of Desire. No two ways about it. It's absolutely fantastic. Wings of Desire. Mm-hmm. I stand by it. It's a great film. I loved it. But yeah. it is just a specific film for a moment in time. And it's not better because it's art house or black and white. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think when films really say something and are really entertaining, and specifically, you could walk in and say, well, that was a really cracking yarn, or that really changed how I feel about the whole subject. You know, like a good poem. Then yeah. those are probably the best. Like... Um, Get Out or, or um, Bloody Parasite. Yeah. You know, it either works as a kind of treatise on modern society or just a, a, a cracking story. And I watched one the other day, which I think I did see once years ago, but I saw it again, and it fits that description of being perfect and small and everything supports everything, and it's an entertainment, but it's also truly a piece of art that sort of has echoes throughout. It's the conversation. Let's go with the conversation. Great, great film. Great answer. 
I mean, you think it. about the, the everything, how everything supports everything. The music that David Shire yeah. does is so odd and, and intellectual, and yet it's also a great theme tune. It's just it's yeah. melodic. You can hook into it. It's a, it's a fantastic film. It's really good, that film. Good answer. What is the film that you could or have watched the most over and over again? Yeah, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? I think it's really important your past tense have watched over and over again. It really counts, doesn't it? Because um, you don't plan it, you know? Like, I would think it would be, I'm sure this is everyone's, it's an obvious one, and I love it, it's Midnight Run. But I don't actually watch Midnight Run that often. I think it's too important to me. Whereas a film like The Fugitive, if it's on telly, I'll, I'll watch it. Watch it to the end. So I think the one that kind of sums it, I'm just like men running, you know, let's see it. <laughs> But Harrison Ford's a flappy runner. He's a bad runner. I remember Joe Heenan pointing out. That's like <laughs> Joe Heenan loves a cr- clumsy hero. So, so Indiana Jones in that first scene is all dusty. <laughs> he's like he's going to fall over. And uh, like Robert Redford's clumsy, isn't he? Anyway, um, what did I say? I didn't say uh, uh, the one that I always watch, but I do really love. But it's a sort of classic, sort of generic. It's In the Line of Fire. Ah, uh, what a great I, film. I can't, I'm always going back to In the Line of Fire. I think it's just exactly that, isn't it? It's like a good, old-fashioned, it's really well-done, good. generic yeah. thriller. And I think there's something, I think Clint Eastwood in it has got a, elevates it with the, I mean, he's, he's miscast, in it, really. He's older than the character should be. But it's right. so lovely to see Clint Eastwood give such good vulnerable, doesn't he? He yeah. plays old really well, really, there's no modesty to it. And yeah. the other thing he does in the line of fire, which is really weird how much I love it, but it's one of the best colds. And he gets a cold. Yeah. Oh, yeah. he's got a cold on the plane. And it says, oh, it's astonishing. I love in the line of fire. It's definitely in the line of fire. Great, 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 great film. Although I should say, say on behalf of my children, um, uh, you know, like, oh, but she's so much younger than him. Come on. <laughs> that, that is true. But, but if it's going to be anyone, it should be Rene Russo. She's perfect yeah, in that role. She is. She plays what? that role a lot, the kind of in, within sexist Hollywood, giving the agency to the slightly older, you know, get shorty in the line of fire, Thomas Crown affair. You Lethal can't Weapon really. Three. Lethal Weapon 3 is great. Lethal I always Lethal liked it more than the first two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we don't like to be negative. What's the worst film you ever saw? <laughs> well, I like to be negative. No, um, okay. uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think when you get down there, I don't really like to be negative. I don't know why I said that. It was just being contrary, which is the same thing, isn't it? Um, <laughs> cut it. Oh, please cut that. Please cut that bit from Joe. Um, <laughs> I don't want them to see copy. the real me. <laughs> I've learned to cry. I won't kill again. I. Um, Come back, E.T., I, I do miss you. <laughs> oh, don't, I couldn't watch it now. I, like, I wouldn't sit down to E.T. now because it would ruin my day. I, no. One of these days I'll get back to it. It's too hard. Never. No way. I, I, find, I, I will never watch that film again. Do you find getting older that you avoid films that are going to make you cry? I've avoided E.T. since I was six. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, no, I'm no fool. Yeah, if you're emotionally literate at the time, I'm talking about the scarringness of melting faces and, and yeah. burnt setting things on fire. But what about the scarringness of a broken heart? Yeah, it's lucky. Yeah. It's lucky my hard carapace of emotionlessness was in place. Now, um, that's not Google's what carapace. Oh, yeah. Go There's on. two, specifically, two different kinds of terrible films, aren't there? There's terrible films that are just completely flat. They just don't engage, don't care. You know, the script's rubbish, nothing rings true. They're just, they're just flat, they're just inert. And then there's terrible films where you, you don't know what's going on. 
Yeah. What were they thinking? What's even happening now? And it, what's weird is that the second kind, they're probably worse, but they're also much more entertaining. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. Because, you know, something like, I don't know, Battlefield Earth. It's a shocking film, but it's eminently watchable. It's all over the place. Yeah. Whereas there's sort of various sort of like sequels and things that you just think, oh. So I think one of the worst films I ever saw in the cinema was the, uh, was the, was the Avengers, the British TV series Avengers. Okay. I don't know what was happening in that film. I mean, it just didn't hang together. Ray Fiennes in Uma Thurman. Ray Fiennes, Uma Thurman, Sean, Sean Connery, Connery, Eddie Izzard. Yeah. It looked like it was going to be good. It was incomprehensible. And right. loads of people not talking. People worry about a script. They just cut the script. It's like Moonraker, just screeds and screeds and screen time with nobody talking and not much happening at all. <laughs> wow. um, but anyway, no, no. The worst film in history of cinema is Michael Winner's Bullseye with uh, Roger Moore <laughs> and Michael Caine, which is fabulously yeah. entertaining. But my God, it's bad. And it's because it's bad anyway, because it's got this kind of gleeful, they made it because they're mates and they're both playing dual roles. So you get Roger Moore and Michael Caine doing accents. Michael Caine in full bad Michael Caine rather than good Michael Caine mode. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, oh, and Roger Moore. I mean, it's fun, but it's so bad, like technically bad. There's a bit where a guy goes and knocks on the door in a train and then the person who answers the door shoots him, I think. It's a long time. What's it again? Yeah. And somehow the special thing, I think they did it with a mannequin or something, but the guy kind of, shatters you know it's like bits of non <laughs> it's a similar effect but without deliberately being a joke as when the guy in top secret falls off the tower the right. nazi goes and there's like wilhelm skin falls off the tower and then when he hits the ground at the bottom he smashes like a vase right. <laughs> so michael winner does that but without any comic intent and i and my friend uh, ferg was watching this and i was sitting next to him and he said to me that's the worst thing i've ever seen <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know i could stand by that it was the worst thing i've ever seen there's a bit at the end where they're oh and the other thing is that michael Caine being an expert at darts is a key is a key thing is right. in being able to throw darts oh god and there's a bit at the end where they jump over a building on a motorbike uh, which is terrible anyway but then i remember the scene it's so obviously an assistant just pushing a motorbike front wheel into shot you know what i mean and the, oh it's brilliantly bad <laughs> I don't think you hear enough about how bad Bullseye is, and it's worth, <laughs> worth a watch. All right, you've, you've properly sold that. What? You're in comedy. You're a comedian. You're very funny. Thank What's you. What's the film that made you laugh the most? Ooh, yeah, I've just mentioned Top Secret. That's, that's got a lot of good jokes in it, isn't yeah. it? It's good. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think the ones where you laugh the most tend to be a little bit, you get slightly less narrative. Like, they need to really commit to the comedy. Yeah. You know, like I know that on Shaun of the Dead, they really made a point of saying, let's not go, let's, if it's a choice between a laugh line and keeping the emotional curve of the film, we're going to do the latter so that you yeah. get a film. And, that, and that's, that's absolutely inspired. They're exactly right, weren't they? And when mm. you think about this, the ones that make you laugh the most are the ones that don't matter and it's just funny. You yeah. know, I mean, I, honestly, when uh, Joe Pesci sets his own head on fire at the end of Home Alone, I don't think in that specifically at that moment, I don't think I've ever laughed louder in the cinema. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just goes, and they just hold on it for ages. Oh, God, I laugh. So I think a film that made me laugh all the way through, even though it was decidedly patchy, but when it made me laugh, 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 I, I you know, was people around me were looking at me in the cinema thinking, what's he going to do? Because I laugh loud anyway. I laugh like my dad. <laughs> that's my so, and then and when it's really funny i kind of flail around in you know, like, you know people do don't they sort of fall off yeah. the chair and stuff 
I think it's Wayne's World 2. Wayne's World 2, when he has the right. fight with Cassandra's dad. Honestly, I, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. Right. I, I, said, I laughed as much as when I saw Rick Mayo live. It was like, oh, right. my, oh my word. And when is this scene going to end? You know, it just kept coming. And uh, again, I, I don't even stand by it. It's doubtless pretty indefensible, but... My memory of, and, and it isn't as good as a film. It's not as good as Wayne's World, but the funny mm. bits in it, that scene. Oh, oh, I laughed. I like that answer a lot. Rob Deering, you have been an absolute delight. Very much as expected. I too have fantasised about this episode with you. And <laughs> it, it has out- outlived my expectations. However, when you were um, hanging out in the small village where you used to be, yeah, have and they found was, out who that was yet? Well, they have. What happened was you were, you were, you know, where you lived, next to the baker and the doctor and the candlestick maker, and you'd gone for a walk, and there appeared a little old lady called Miss Marple. And she said, hello, I'm just visiting. And you said, oh, it's lovely to see you. And she said, would you mind walking me uh, through the woods? And you said, yeah, absolutely, of course I would. I love nature trails. I usually run Miss Marple and you took her arm and you walked and as you headed towards some trees where no one could see you, she pulled an um, axe from uh, her back pocket, a little mini axe, and she chopped you, you in the fucking head with it and she repeatedly struck you in the head with her little axe until you were dead. And then, what a cow! Yeah, and then, uh, no spoilers, but she then framed... Um, the candlestick maker for your murder and that person is still languishing in jail and she are you saying do you think that she did all the murders in all the stories that she apparently it's not for me to say what other murders she may have done i just know she did this one and an axe that small could be very convenient now i was walking (laughs) through the woods in this little uh, sylvanian family town and i and i see and i'm like what's all this up ahead i'm walking along with a coffin you know what i'm like and i see animals tearing apart the corpse of someone. And I pull up and I'm like, oh, that's Rob Deering, isn't it? Look when you say animals, were they wild animals or were they, they hedgehogs were dressed as doctors? <laughs> there was the doctor, Dr. Badger and uh, <laughs> the Baker, Baker Beaver and uh, the candlestick cat. And they much were, in the manner of Zootropolis, they were, their, their essential yeah. nature had been revealed and they were yeah. tearing me to... Sh- oh, that's interesting. They were eating you. I said, I said, shoo, get out of it. And I did what I could. I got the bits of you that I could into the coffin, but there was shrubbery, wood, sticks, all sorts. Anyway, I stuff you in the coffin. It's absolutely jammed in there. Like some kind of nightmare muesli. <laughs> and there's no room in this muesli. There's only enough room for me to slip one DVD into the side for you to take across to the other side. And on the other side, it's movie night every night. What film are you taking to show the people of heaven when it's your movie night, Mr. Rob Deering? Yeah, yeah. This is really interesting, isn't it, in terms of what we said? Because you want to take, you want to say, I'm going to take this film that I absolutely love. You know, I could, I don't watch True Grit every day. I would cry so much every day. Mm. I don't want to watch Midnight Run every day. I would cry so much every day (laughs) in the middle there, in that scene where, you know, the scene. So I think if I'm brutally honest... Let's be completely honest about this. I don't think I could ever get sick of watching In the Line of Fire. So we stay with that. It's going to be what In the Line of Fire. wonderful, but, wonderful answer. And if I can make an emotional claim, I think that I really relate to Clint Eastwood in these films and his vulnerability because he does remind me emotionally of my late 
wonderful dad who was absolutely fantastic and the best dad, but also in the manner of someone born in 1942, not given to bold, wild displays of emotion or, or hugs. And so um, what I'm saying is that what seems like a fairly crass <laughs> answer does actually have some emotional depth. Um, uh, so, yeah. I'm, <laughs> and I'm take- not a psychopath. And not- that's all I need to tell you. <laughs> Mother, blood, blood. I'm taking um, uh, uh, in line of fire and I'm not ashamed. Rob Deering, is there anything you would like to tell people to look out for or to listen to or to read? in the coming times well if you are uh basically the stuff that you should look out for relating to me is currently all running related so uh check that out i did uh and it's all i've got two podcasts running commentary where me and paul tonkerson talk about life and running while we run you got the running tracks radio hour where i do the playlist you don't have to run you could just listen to the songs they're great but you will have to listen to me running telling you about them. And, uh, and then there's the book of that, which is nice. Again, if you want to, uh, you know, dig a bit deeper into the emotion of the thing, but it's funny, my book, uh, Running Tracks, A Playlist in Places That May Be a Runner, is available. It's gorgeous. It's got, oh, can I show you a picture? Wait there, wait there. You've got to see this. Damn it. It's relevant. I should have had one handy. For the listener, he's running to the back of the room. And now he's running back, showing us the running. Have you been standing this whole time? Yeah, that's, uh, that's where the computer is. Love it. Look, this, you can see why I got this oh, Saul wow. Bass-inspired cover. Look at that. Isn't that gorgeous? That is genuinely very cool. It's by me, Cobb, but it, it was my idea. And it looks like, for, for those of you listening, it looks, it's called Running Tracks, but it looks like a, what we're talking about, anatomy of, mur- of a murder, vertigo. Yeah, anatomy of a murder of a man running on the grooves of a record. Yeah, yeah. Well, you did. Track. You imagine a murder with an axe from a sweet yeah. little old lady. Thanks very much. But um, yeah, and and, uh, 50% of the profits of that go to Parkinson's UK. Very nice. I'm thinking I'm going to start a movie podcast um, because I feel like, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, There's a gap in the market. Yeah, yeah. But that's going to be called the X to Z of the movies and it's not going to be as good as this one. But look out for it. (laughs) Enjoy it. (laughs) Uh, Rob Deering, God bless you. Thank you for your time. Have a lovely death. Thanks for having me. Sorry I had to die for that to take place. Real shame. Lots of love. Good day to you. Goodbye. So that was episode 196. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein for the extra 20 minutes of chat, secrets and video with Rob. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, but write about the film that means the most to you and why. I'll tell you why you should do that, because my neighbour Maureen loves reading it. It always makes her cry. Thank you so much to Rob for doing this show. Thank you to Scroobius Pip and the Distraction Pieces Network. Thanks to Buddy Peace for producing it. Thanks to Acast for hosting it. Thanks to Adam Richardson for the graphics and Lisa Lydon for the photography. Come and join me next week for another brilliant guest. I hope you're all well. Thank you very much for listening. That is it for now. In the meantime, have a lovely week and please be excellent to each other. Sometimes I dream of becoming an actor. Have you ever dreamt of becoming an actor? 
Maureen, what is it you think I do for a living? Never mind, sounds like you need the New York Film Academy. NIFA offers workshops, BFA and MFA degrees and summer camps in filmmaking, acting, journalism and more, online and on campuses across the globe. To make films alongside industry professionals, explore more at nyfa.edu. Thanks, Brett. Thank you, Maureen. Maureen, your Canva presentation looks brilliant. Thanks, Brett. That's because I used AI-powered Canva presentations. I just described what I wanted and Canva presentations generated the perfect slides. You can even make a talking presentation for people to watch on their own time. Check this out. Recording. 101 Reasons Why Beaches is the Saddest Film Ever Made by your neighbour Maureen. Is it easy to use? If you can use a computer, you can nail your next work presentation with Canva Presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Oh, thanks, my neighbour Maureen. Yeah, thank you.